Well, good morning, Family Church. I normally never drink coffee in the morning, but I had some coffee this morning. I don't know if that's going to be a good thing or a bad thing this morning. You know how when you don't drink coffee and you drink it, you feel a little jittery? So that's how I feel uh, this morning. I'm excited where we're at this morning, John chapter 20. So would you open your Bibles to John chapter 20? As we just sang about, we're going to be looking at the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the importance of that passage this morning. What a privilege. Last week, we saw in Genesis 3 how sin entered into the world through Adam. And we're going to see this morning that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is really the inauguration of a new creation into the world. This is the moment all of creation had been waiting for, was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Was God going to abandon the world he had created, or was he going to redeem the, th- the world through a new birth in his promise that he gave? The world at this point in our passage is in a dark place. Jesus Christ, the Savior, had just been crucified. And as you look out, and as the evidences and the people who were in that situation looked out, they would have felt despair. There was tears, there was crying, it was a dark place. It looks as if Jesus' time on the cross ended in defeat rather than victory at this point in the narrative. Our passage this morning testifies to the light bursting forth from the grave. We're in John chapter 20, beginning in verse 1 this morning. It says, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out and with the other disciple, and they were going towards the tomb. Verse 4 is just an interesting verse. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. It's just kind of thrown in there. It's interesting. They're both running together, and apparently one was much faster than the other, and he received and got to the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen clothes lying there, but he did not go in. So he ran with anticipation faster than Peter. He got there first, but he didn't go in. Peter, as soon as he gets there, burst in to the tomb. He saw the linen clothes lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. If you've been here for some time, you might have heard Pastor Terry share how his wife in college had the sign over her bed that said, right? What did it say? You remember Church, if Jesus Christ can rise from the dead, surely you can get out of bed, right? Well, I want to add here that in verse 7, not only did Jesus Christ rise from the bed, but it actually says after he rose from the dead, he made his bed. Verse 7, I just love the detail here, it says, He's not lying there with linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Reading through this passage, I just picture Jesus coming back to life, unwrapping his linen cloth, and and can you imagine Jesus in the tomb just nonchalantly rising from the dead and then taking time to fold the clothes he was wearing? I mentioned this to my wife, just an interesting, I love these details in the text, and she, she read that, and she always just assumed that Jesus rising from the dead, that it just kind of fell off of him and folded itself, 
you know, on the way down, Jesus' power, and it's just, it could have worked that way. I, I picture Jesus just kind of folding it and dusting everything off, and it's just interesting detail in the text that we see that he made his bed. Verse 8, then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, he went in. And then we see, verse 11, Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped in to look into the tomb. She saw two angels in white, the disciples had left at this time, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Now, she doesn't know that they're angels at this point, apparently, because she just talks with them. She said to them, they have taken away my Lord. I do not know where they have laid him. Verse 14, having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. But she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Maybe she was in such despair. But she was blinded at this point. She didn't see Jesus in front of her. Said, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And then it says this interesting detail in verse 15. She supposed him to be the gardener. And she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. And at that point, she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Would you pray with me as we dig in and understand this text more? God, we thank you for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. As we just sang about, you were laid in Joseph's tomb. On the third day, you burst forth inaugurating, bringing in a new creation, life itself, a life-giving spirit through you, through the resurrection. God, we thank you today that we are in victory in Christ. We pray for our understanding of what the resurrection means in our life. And as we dig into this text, may you help it apply to our lives as we know that it does. May you deepen our understanding of our relationship with you. May you call those who may not know you as Lord and Savior today. Do a work only you can do in our life. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to go back to verse 1 in chapter 20. All four Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John mention that on the first day of the week, Mary came to the tomb. This is important, symbolizing this is Sunday, first day of the week. This is why we corporately worship on Sunday, and it's very important detail that all Gospels speak of this is the day he was resurrected. We see Mary here, Another interesting note, Mary was the first eyewitness to see Jesus. Mary was the first eyewitness to hear Jesus. Mary was the first eyewitness to talk with Jesus. And Mary was the first eyewitness to touch the resurrected Jesus. If the resurrection was a hoax made up by the disciples, they would not have had Mary be the key testimony in this story. Because women at this time could not testify in court at all. They would not have had a key witness to be a woman. Just some extra detail there. Verse 14, she turned around. She saw Jesus standing there. She didn't know who it was. And she said this interesting statement. She supposed him to be the gardener. There are no accidents or mistakes in the Gospel of John. And last week, we saw numerous people all throughout history, but in the gospel presentations, how they were perfectly fulfilling their role, yet they had no idea what they were doing. We see Pilate write the words, Jesus, the king of the Jews in all the common languages, yet he had no idea. Joseph Caiaphas, the high priest that year, prophesied according to the scripture. He was prophesying for his own selfish gain, 
But in fact, it was perfectly according to Scripture what he prophesied, and it was true. By the way, another historical archaeological discovery. In 1990, a first century tomb with a very ornate ossuary. This is after the body had been decomposed uh, for quite some time. They would go back in, gather the bones up, and place it in an ossuary. One of these was discovered near Jerusalem with Joseph Caiaphas' name on it. The bones of about a 60-year-old man. We have a picture of this. But just one more example of Scripture that shows the Bible's authenticity and what we find matches up perfectly with what the Bible teaches My point here is that everyone did things not knowing how true their words were. Mary supposed Jesus to be the gardener, but what she supposed in ignorance was in fact the deepest truth. And I wanted to explain that a little bit this morning. Here we see, we saw last week that Jesus was placed in a tomb, and this tomb was placed inside of a garden. And here in this garden, like a new garden of Eden, was the gardener himself, Jesus Christ, emerging victorious from the tomb. This is in contrast to the first Adam that we see in Genesis. He was also placed in a garden, the Garden of Eden, and he was placed there to be a gardener. And where the first Adam failed in his responsibility, we see the second Adam, Jesus Christ, succeed in his responsibility. This time there was no danger of a serpent. He had been crushed There was no danger of disobedience because Jesus had perfectly fulfilled all obedience. Jesus Christ emerged from the tomb, resurrected and victorious. Death, for the first time, was swallowed up in victory. Our salvation is not only found in the life of Jesus Christ or in the death of Jesus Christ, it is found through the resurrection of Jesus Christ on the cross. Without the resurrection of Christ, there is no hope, there is no life. We cannot be born again. Now, why is that? Why can't we be born again? Why couldn't it be that Jesus Christ just died on the cross for our sins? We trust in that and that we are given new life. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading. Notice it says, we have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection. Eternal life is given of God through Jesus Christ, his anointed one. I want us to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Go ahead and take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 20. In this chapter of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we see Paul take a great time to compare and contrast the first Adam, we find in Genesis, and the second Adam, Jesus Christ. In verse 20, it says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man, Adam, came death, By a man, Jesus Christ, has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam, the first gardener, all die, also in Christ are all made alive. But each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, and then 
his coming, those who belong to Christ. So in Paul's mind, there are two main characters. There's Adam and there's Jesus Christ, and they each produce very different types of fruit. Everyone you know in life is one of two types of fruit, right? Some of you are like, yeah, I know. I have some really interesting people in my life, and we could call them something like that, right? So one is the first fruit of death, Adam. One is the first fruit of life, Jesus Christ. This idea of first fruits is found all through 1 Corinthians 15. And without the understanding of the biblical concept of first fruits, we can't really understand 1 Corinthians 15 and even the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So 1 Corinthians 15 verses 3 through 4 is really a summary of the gospel. Here's priority number one in your life, understanding 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 4. Listen to him saying the importance of this. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I have received. This is first importance for us to understand that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. We believe this. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you believe he died according to the scriptures for our sins. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So not only did he die in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried in accordance with the scriptures, but he rose again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. You might be asking, well, what scriptures was the third day resurrection in accordance to? In fact, just after last week's sermon, someone from the church came and asked me, and they said, are there any specific Old Testament prophecies that ask the very question or talk about him having to be resurrected on the third day. And that's exactly what the text is saying, is that he was supposed to be resurrected according to the scriptures on the third day. Well, what scriptures are those? Was it Jonah? Three days in the belly of the whale. Hosea 6, which references a third day. Genesis 22, the sacrifice of Isaac. It says, on the third day... Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar, the place where he was going to go sacrifice his son. A picture of what Jesus Christ one day would do for us. These passages all mention a third day, but we want to look for a scripture that really references a third day, but also fruit. Does anyone know what scripture references the third day and fruit? Genesis chapter 1. Paul is thinking the third day of creation. Jesus Christ's resurrection was in accordance to the third day of creation. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 1. Turn in Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 8. We're going to end at the end of the second day going into the, the third day. Genesis chapter 1, verse 8. God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. Notice in Scripture, there's always darkness first and then the light. The same is true with the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's darkness first and then the light. The same is true with our life. There's darkness first. We were born in darkness. And those who come to Jesus Christ, the light. Verse 9, God said, let the waters under the heaven be gathered into one place. Let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth. And they were gathered together, he called the seas, and God saw that it was good. Verse 11, God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, 
and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind of the earth. And it was so, the earth brought forth vegetation, plants, yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind. God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the third day. Some of you might be wondering, I didn't see a resurrection of Jesus Christ in this passage. How does day three of creation account really compare with 1 Corinthians chapter 15? Well, the Bible teaches that sin is passed down through the seed of Adam. Sin is passed down through the seed of one generation to the next, like the seed of a fruit. What is the definition of a fruit, church? Where do we find the seed in fruit? Within itself, right? And so Adam brought forth seed according to his kind. Adam, according to the Bible, is a first fruit of sin. He's the first fruit of humanity. And in him is the seed of all of us. We all came from Adam. And in him is the seed that's been passed down throughout generation after generation. Just as Christ, being risen on the third day, would be the first fruit of a new creation. Anytime someone planted a crop, the first fruit would be the first fruit, literally, that that came from that crop. Well, Adam was the first fruit of something, and Jesus Christ is the first fruit of life. So when Jesus Christ was resurrected, he was the first of something that had never been done before, the first fruit of a life-giving spirit. A new kind of fruit would now come through Jesus Christ. The seed was found in him. This is why the scriptures say, apart from Christ, you cannot be saved. Your salvation comes through the resurrection and through the person of Jesus Christ. The seed is found in him, the first fruit. Just as our former self was found in Adam, so our new self would be found in Jesus Christ, the fruit of salvation. So these two individuals, Adam and Jesus Christ, yield very different crops. This is why when you're reading Paul, it seems as though he's talking about Adam and Jesus Christ as they're the only two people in the world. And in fact, it's true. You're either part of Adam's family or part of Jesus Christ's family. There's two families to be part of. There's a big picture. When Adam sinned, Scripture says all of mankind sinned because all men are from Adam. We have a family devotional booklet that we've put together here at the Family Church for those of you with children. And one of the questions that we often go through is in the first chapter here, one of the catechism questions is, who were our first parents? So I ask our two-year-old, who were our first parents? And the answer is, our first parents were Adam and Eve. And so he has mommy and daddy as parents, but our first parents, all of our first parents Where we came from, the seed came from, is Adam and Eve. So literally, you and I were born spiritually dead. We were born into a dead family. A messed up family, right? Some of you are like, well, I was born into a pretty weird family. I mean, but really all of us in Adam, we were born into a dysfunctional family. And because Adam sinned, we all sinned. Well, how is that fair? I mean, how is it fair that Adam's sin makes things not right with me and God? Well, 
We believe this concept all the time, but then it comes spiritually, we think we're pretty good people, even though we come from the family of Adam. I mean, when we're playing sports, nobody gets offended or upset that the whole team suffers when one person fouls, right? You're playing basketball, one person fouls, the whole team is penalized. You're playing football, one person fouls, the whole team. It's, it's, it's not like you just take out that one person. Church, we need to consider ourselves on team Adam, all right? That's where we all started. We actually have a little jersey that we made, team Adam. And so this is what we should look like, team Adam, it is really what the jersey is that we all came out wearing. Some of you might be, might have had bad parents growing up, and you've kind of made it in your mind that you're not going to be like your parents. You're going to do things differently. Maybe your parents weren't the best. You can act differently. You can do everything different from your parents, but you can't change that genetically you are still their child. You can't change who your family is. The same is true. All of us have been born of Adam, and we can't change it. We can try to be different. We can try to act different. But at our roots, we are in Adam, and we are the seed of Adam. And because of that, we are born dead, broken, sinful. In fact, one of the questions here, this is going to be a real tough, tough one. We're teaching our, our two-year-old this. One of the questions is, don't get offended, okay? But this is biblically true. Listen to this. How sinful are you by nature? How sinful are you by nature? That's the question. Answer, I am corrupt in every part of my being. Sounds like a pretty harsh thing to teach a two-year-old, doesn't it? How sinful are you by nature? Well, if we believe the Bible that we really came from Adam, we have no life in us. The scripture that goes along with this, Romans 3, there is no one, not even one, who is righteous. There was no one who understands, no one who seeks after God. They have all turned away. There is no one who does good, not even one. So important, church. We're teaching our family because when, when my child, who is two, two and a half, realizes there's nothing good in him, that means he can't look in himself for hope. He has to look outside. And we, we teach our two-and-a-half-year-old, mommy and daddy sin too. And when we sin, who do we have to go to? We go to Jesus Christ. We always are pointing to Jesus Christ. There is no hope found in us. Our culture says you don't have to be like your parents. But inwardly, we're just like our parents. We're descendants of Adam and Eve. So how do we get off this team? We really, we can't be changed. We have to be born again. We have to be traded, for instance. Romans 5, 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Romans 5. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, right? So one act of righteousness, the act of Jesus Christ, leads to justification and the life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the sin of Adam, many were made sinners, our original family, so the one man's obedience, the many, were made righteous. Notice the two families here. One trespass of the old Adam affected all mankind. One act of righteousness, 
the act of Jesus Christ, life, death, and resurrection is that all men who turn to Jesus Christ would be brought over, made into a new family. We put on a new jersey. I want to ask you today, are you still living in the family of Adam? What jersey are you wearing? Have you been born again? Because the first way we've all been born, we're in the family of Adam. But have you been born again? I'm not asking, have you gone to church or there's some things you believe, but have you been born again, radically transformed from one life of, in Adam, in our sin, to being reborn into Jesus Christ? Because if you haven't, you're still wearing that jersey of Adam, our first family, the guilt of Adam. And if you have the guilt of Adam, then you're also going to have the consequences of Adam as well. But the righteousness of Jesus Christ, our second Adam, brings life, joy, peace, patience, kindness, forgiveness for all sin. So which of these two choices has the greater power to overcome? The old Adam we were once in or the new Adam in Jesus Christ? Romans 5.20 says, The law came to increase the trespass, but where the sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, Grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. A summary of that passage, the sin that was in me, the sin that it's in you, Jesus Christ is greater than that sin. He has more grace, more righteousness than the sin in us. Now that should be pretty overwhelming to you if you understand the depths of our sin. I mean, if you understand how often we sin, our thoughts and the things we say, and the motives of our heart, his righteousness far outweighs that. Another family catechism that we're teaching our child. By the way, we have these available in our children's ministry for free. We want families doing these devotionals together with your family. There's songs that go along. I know most of these from listening to some of the songs in the car with our children. But one of these is, what is justification? There's a song. It's going in my mind right now. What is justification? I'm not singing it, though. What is justification? The men's ministry has actually heard me sing some of these songs on a Thursday morning. So if you haven't been coming to our men's ministry Thursday morning, you've been missing out on me singing these songs. So what is justification? Answer, justification is God forgiving all my sins and declaring me to be righteous. God forgiving all my sins and declaring me to be righteous. Well, I grew up hearing what is justification. I heard the definition just as if I had not sinned. Probably many of you have heard that definition, and I was excited about that definition. I was made just as if I had not sinned when I became a Christian. Well, that's great news. The only problem is I messed it up pretty quick. I was made just as if I had not sinned. The slate was cleaned But it wasn't long before it was dirty again. And the question comes of, well, it's been wiped clean. I mean, and I've made it dirty. How how many wipes does God have to keep wiping this clean? I mean, surely he's going to run out of wipes. By the way, how many of you ever tried to clean something and ran out of wipes? I mean, I have a lot of illustrations having two children where we're trying to clean something and you pull out and you only have one wipe. I'm not going to go into the details I could have had pictures, but I decided not to. But the good news is that 
Jesus Christ wipes that slate clean and it stays clean. We've been given a new robe of righteousness that never gets dirty. So it's not just that it's wiped clean once, it stays clean. Often if we have that definition of just as if I have not sinned, we often can ask the question because we feel like, well, do I need to be re-justified? Do I need to be rebaptized? Do I need to reconfess and repent continually over to, to get salvation? And we struggle with this because we don't understand that we have been radically reborn into a new family. It's not that we're still in Adam and we've just been made clean some. It's that we've been born out of one family and reborn radically into a new family. That's how we should see our salvation is that we're no longer in Adam. We've been made clean. No, we're in Jesus Christ now. We've been radically reborn. So if you've trusted in Jesus Christ, you're part of a new family. This is a major change. It's not based on feelings. It's not based on circumstances. It is based on him, Jesus Christ. He is our righteousness. And does God ever change? No. So if God never changes and he's the basis of our righteousness, does our righteousness ever change? No, because God never changes. So if you are in Christ and he never changes, this means our salvation never changes as well. John chapter 14, verse 19, we saw months back, it says, Jesus speaking here, he says, because I live, what? You also will live. Notice that your living is not based on you. Your living is based on his being alive. Did any of us have anything to do with Jesus Christ being made alive? No. And so our living in Christ was based on his living first. Incredible thought. He does the living because he lives we can now live. We don't get good to come to Christ. We don't try and live right to get right. We come to Christ to be made new. We come to Christ in our brokenness to be made right, to be made whole. We were once in Adam and there was nothing we could do. I am sinful and corrupt to my deepest core. There is no good righteousness in me. Biblical definition of who we are in Christ, or in Adam, sorry. So if you belong to Adam, you share his guilt. We share, if you belong to Adam, his future death, separation from God. It seems today that our culture, our society, and people are trying to be unique. I don't know if you've seen this, but everybody's trying to be something special, independent, to find themselves whether it's trying to figure out what gender they are. I just heard a statistic that there are now 76 classifications of identity. Sexual identity, 76. So they're trying to figure out who they are, what they are, what they look like, how they feel, how they should act. They're searching for something only Christ can give. Church, as believers, we can't have a better identity than Jesus Christ. So what I want to tell you is stop trying to be special this morning, church. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, we have the greatest identity we could ever ask for. Our identity, first and foremost, is Christian, Christ-like. We can't get a better identity than Jesus Christ. 
And so, so many times I, I see people who identify as something else and, and then a Christian. No, we are a Christian first and foremost. And that is the greatest identity we could ever have. When we first became a Christian, we became more human than we had ever been. When Adam and Eve fell, sin entered into the world and they became less human. They became less than what God had. So when you became a Christian, when I became a Christian, we became more human, more special, more phenomenal, more unique than we had ever been in our entire life because we were restored one step closer to what it means to really be a perfect individual made in God's image. Adam and Eve's image is broken. There's still some of that, but it has been marred by sin. If you're in Christ, you have a new identity. And it's a good thing to be seen as a Christian. We're beyond condemnation. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 35, it kind of walks through this passage. It says, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? And the answer to this is really that first fruit idea we talked about. Genesis 1 says that each reproduce according to their kind. So those of us in Jesus Christ will be raised according to whose kind? Jesus Christ, right? This is why one day we will have a body like his. It's not just because he tells us, but because it's based on this idea of fruit. We are seed of Jesus Christ. And so one day we're going to be made like him because we have came from him. We are a first fruit or we are a seed of the first fruit. Jesus Christ being made of life. In 1 Corinthians 15 or verse 42, it says, So it is with the resurrection of the dead. This is comparing the life in Adam and the life in Jesus Christ. We're going to walk through it here briefly. It says, The resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, the body of Adam. What is raised is imperishable, the life of Christ. What is sown is dishonor, it is raised in glory. What is sown in weakness, our physical flesh in Adam, right? It is raised in power, verse 44. It is sown a natural body, our natural body from Adam. It is raised a spiritual body. We've been made new in Jesus Christ. If there is a natural body, we have a natural body, Right, a gift from Adam through God, but we have a natural body. There is also a spiritual body. We have a spiritual body to come. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. Who were our first parents? All right, church. We just went through this catechism, right? Who were our first parents? Adam and Eve were our first parents. That's right. So the first Adam became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural. So what came first, our spiritual life or our physical life? Physical. And so scripture saying we came first from Adam, we're born in the flesh, we're born in sin, but then came spiritual life through Jesus Christ. The first man was from the earth. So we are all from the earth. Verse 47, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. Verse 48, 
As was the man of dust, Adam from Genesis, so also are those who are of the dust. That was all of us before Christ. As is the man of heaven, so also are all of those who came from Christ, the seed of him from heaven. Just as we have borne the image of a man of dust, all of us have borne the image of Adam, the first Adam. We have a body like his. It's another catechism. We have a body. What did God give Adam and Eve? This is a catechism. It goes through a family, and we've been given a body of the dust. And then what comes through Jesus Christ? We're given a body in the spirit. Verse 49, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust in Christ, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. The common view today of a Christian is that to be a Christian is someone who is slightly less human, someone who has less fun, someone who's stale, stagnant, vanilla, might be something we could call it. But if you are in Christ, it doesn't mean you're less human. It's as I mentioned, it means you're more human than you have ever been. The humanity that we all once knew in Adam was a humanity that was dead. It was shriveled up. It was undone due to the effects of sin. But to be in Adam is to be restored by the gardener, Jesus Christ. And the same is true with us. As we've been now reborn into Jesus Christ, we now have a hope that comes from him, an unchanging hope. We can now comfort those who are broken. We can comfort those who are widows or who is fighting in pain or sickness. In Jesus Christ, we share his life. We share his victory over death, over sin, over disease, over sickness. We are victorious because our head, Jesus Christ, has been victorious. In Genesis 1, 26, this is what we read of Adam. Then God said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God made Adam and Eve to have dominion. They were to be a perfect gardener, to be a perfect steward over the garden and the animals, the earth. And when Adam and Eve sinned, everything came crashing down. There came in thorns, thistles, disease, and sin. For thousands of years, that's how the world was. And it was waiting in anticipation for the second Adam to come. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. So when we see in the Gospels, John chapter 20, Mary mistaking Jesus Christ for the gardener, she was absolutely right because he is the second perfect gardener. He was in the garden and he was coming to restore all that humanity and Adam had broken from the first gardener. I love to see how Jesus Christ emerges from the tomb victorious in the garden. The very same type of setting where our first Adam failed. As the true gardener, Jesus Christ, he undid the effects of all the fall through his resurrection. He triumphed over death itself. Through the victory of the cross and over the death itself, in his resurrection, we too can now have eternal life. How we receive that life is simply turning to trust in Jesus Christ. We have to be born again. It comes through 
Adam. Just as our former sin came through the first Adam, so too our salvation comes through the second Adam. We turn to Jesus Christ. We have to be born again. If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ this morning, I encourage you, the next few moments, spend time in prayer. Ask him to save you. Ask him to bring him into this family of what it means to be a Christian. He is not only lived a perfect life for you, not only did he die a sinner's death for you, but he rose victorious from the grave to defeat sin in your life, to make things right between you and the Lord. What a joy it is that we can now live in Adam, that one day, because we are from his seed, we will have a body like his. That's where that concept comes from. If you have any questions of what it means to be a Christ follower, we would love to talk with you after the service. I want to pray for us this morning. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you that we can be found in Jesus Christ, the second Adam. You are the first fruit of a new life. God, we thank you that you emerged victorious from the garden, out of the tomb, setting the stage that where Adam failed, you succeeded. And so we now look to you that our hope comes through you. As we once looked to Adam as a broken individual, this is where we came from, sin in our life. We now look to you, Jesus Christ, that this is where resurrection and this is where righteousness comes from. Because we have been born again by your seed. We have been made alive through your spirit. So God, I pray for those who may doubt their salvation and have questions. God, maybe they're not saved and they need to re be born again. Maybe they have been saved, but they have a, a, a different concept of what justification means. God, I pray for those who may be struggling. May they see they have been born into a new family and the radical change that makes in our life. God, we thank you we can have hope and trust in Jesus Christ. We thank you that you've died for our sins and that you have raised us up to be men and women, grandparents and children who have a new identity. We don't have to search for an identity in this world. You have given us the greatest identity of being a Christian that we could ever ask for. So God, we thank you. We end this time in, in praise to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.